Chats, a show where I, Josh Pinkford, founder of Bear Metrics, give my founder pals a ring to talk shop and stick my nose in their business. This week, I chat with John O'Nolan, founder of Ghost, which is a publishing platform for, for published, that's, there's a lot of P's there, publishing platform for professional bloggers. And in this episode, we chat about the origins of Ghost and how John used Kickstarter to kick off their product, uh, what running a nonprofit is like, transparency, running a remote team, and having a greater purpose than just software. All sorts of juicy things. Hope you enjoy. Hey, John. Thanks for hopping on the call. What's up, Josh? How's it going? <laughs> it's going good. Still going good. Same as it was a couple minutes ago. Yeah. Good times. Oh, man. Okay. Cool. So, um... Let's uh, let's jump in here. So, um, I think like, it feels like a good place to start here might be. There's a couple of things oh, we could start in all sorts of places, John. Um, <laughs> let's start with the ghost like origin story here. So, like, what what was the impetus for ghosts' existence? Um, that's a great question. I'm trying to think. I'm trying to think of how to do the short version of that. Uh, I guess it was a lot of things that all kind of came together at the same time. Um, so I used to be a freelance designer, developer, uh, doing client work with WordPress, and more often than not, that would end up in me doing a blog for them. So it's mostly kind of building, building blogs for larger and larger companies, starting local businesses, and then getting all the way up to kind of Microsoft, Nokia, Virgin Atlantic, those types of people. Yep. Um, and at a certain point, I thought, hey, I'm doing all this work with this open source software. It would probably be a good idea to know a little bit more about this actual open source software, know where it's going in the future. Um, all that kind of stuff, which led me to starting to contribute to WordPress yep. as an open source contributor. And after a couple of years of that, um, eventually... And when you, say, when you say contributing to WordPress, are you saying like the UI stuff or like actual just core code? Uh, a little bit of both. So it was, it was front-end dev and UI design gotcha. um, and making all those good things happen. And after a couple of years of doing that, I ended up leading that, that design working group um, and then kind of watched as WordPress really grew up a lot and started turning into this kind of full-blown content management system, started being more of a website builder. Um, and the use case, the core use case I had, which was building blogs for my clients and for myself, um, slowly kind of just didn't become, wasn't the focus anymore, it shifted. Um, so I had this kind of niggling idea in the back of my head for a long time, like what would WordPress look like if you rebuilt it today and you made it just for publishing? Um, and of course, I told myself that's a stupid idea because who in the world wants yet another blogging platform? So I kind of repressed this idea for, I don't know, a year, year and a half, um, but it didn't go away. So eventually I just kind of wrote this blog post um, with some mock-ups and stuff just to scratch my own itch and at least just get the idea out of my head, thinking that maybe a few people would look at it or a few hundred people would look at it if I tweeted at it. Uh, and that ended up with a quarter of a million page views or visits, I think, uh, in the first week, front page of Packer News, front page of all the rest of the things. And that was the strongest response or reaction I'd ever had to kind of an idea that I'd put out into the world. So I thought I'd be pretty crazy if I didn't try and pursue this. So I did. So, and, th and then the way, though, that you, like, decided to pursue it was slightly atypical, correct? I mean, like at this point, like what point did Kickstarter come into the picture? Oh, Kickstarter was only like six months later. Um, and, but I mean, you had, had you even coded anything at that point? No, no, nothing. No, no. I mean, it was because when you started Kickstarter, that was like, hey, here's my idea for this thing. If it gets funded, I'll build it. Ah. Right. 
so when, now when we got to the Kickstarter, we had a version 0.1 prototype. So we had like a node app that would start and there was a base UI where a lot of the stuff in there was just mocked with kind of images instead of actual user interface. Um, yep. And just had like the absolute bare minimum to prove um, this is a thing that we can do as possible. And here is the absolute pre MVP version working. Um, yeah. And that was the, the, the well, basis. What, what, so at this time, this is what, 2000 and like 13. 13. Okay. Yeah. So when, when, I mean, you know, it seemed like WordPress had reached this sort of point where, like you said, it, it became not blogging anymore. Like it was, yeah. you could, you could create a blog, but it did almost, I mean, to the, to the point where it was almost painful to use. Right. Yeah. So, um, some, I feel like some other stuff started popping up, popping up as well. So like, um, like Dustin Curtis's subtle, yeah. like that sort of thing where you could create this like really simple thing. Um, were there others that were also kind of popping up around then too? Yeah, they all kind of started happening around the same time. So there was Subtle and Medium and Rune. Um, uh, that's right. Even Jekyll was just starting to become more mainstream at that point. Yep. Yep. Um, so it was this little renaissance of kind of new blogging platforms that all sort of started popping up around the same time. Um, most of which are no longer Don't, don't today. exist. Um, right. Yeah. Medium obviously is. Uh, sure. Subtle seems to be basically in maintenance mode. Yeah, um, we're still around. So there you go. Well, so so let's talk the Kickstarter campaign. So um, in 2013, it was 2013, right? Yeah. Is that what you said? Yeah. So like, was funding open source software a thing on Kickstarter at that point? Not really. Um, no. So we had we had Diaspora, uh, uh, yeah. which was the most funded open source thing yep. um, that existed. And then there was um, Ouya, which wasn't software, it was hardware. But the, you remember the games console, the open source games console yep. thing, Ouya? Um, I do. So there's those, yep. two, those two things. But other than that, no, almost nothing around. Uh, so it was a bit of a step into the unknown. <laughs> right, right. And was the, like, what were, what were the biggest hesitations, do you think, that for, for people wanting to fund that? Because you can think of hardware stuff, there's obvious limit, uh, there's hesitations with, you know, you've got to produce this physical object, but I mean, you know, funding software, it sort of seems a lot more inevitable than a hardware project. Yeah, it's definitely a lot more low risk. Um, I also had a really dogged focus on not having any physical rewards of any kind. Um, I'd seen so many Kickstarter projects get bogged down by spending all their time making and shipping t-shirts um, yep. as opposed to building the thing they're supposed to do. Um, and the other really messed up thing there that I think a lot of people don't realize when they start Kickstarter projects is if you have like a reward for your product um, at $10 and then you have a $25 level where you also get a t-shirt, okay, you actually get the same amount of money for your project because your extra $15 you're going to spend on producing the t-shirt. So there's zero benefit to you as a creator in getting someone's extra 15 bucks for a higher reward. And then you waste a ton of time getting sizes, yep. getting inventory, getting shipping, getting returns, getting stuff lost in the mail. <laughs> what was the what was the highest um, reward that you offered? Uh, the maximum Kickstarter allowed at that point um, on the UK side, which is where we were, was 5,000 English pounds, which is about 7,500 US dollars at the time. 
in the US, if you were in US Kickstarter, it would have been $10,000. Mm -hmm. But yeah, we couldn't go above that. So we had uh, eight limited edition slots. So what did that get you? That got you basically corporate sponsorship. You got your logo on the site for a year. You got to be part of the launch event, um, logo plus link on the site rather, um, along with you know unlimited pro accounts um, for a couple of years. Yep, that's cool. Um, so how do you, the transition, I mean, so you've been heavily involved with WordPress. Yeah. Um, did that, like making the move to your own thing, did the relationships that you had had from the WordPress open source community, did that help or was there like this animosity that came from sort of almost building a quasi competitor? <laughs> oh, a little from column A, a little from column B. Um, really interesting one there. Like there's, there's always this kind of slight standoff uh, as if Ghost and WordPress are direct competitors, which I think is completely incorrect. Um, right. It's just they're going, WordPress these days is really competing with Squarespace and Wix. That's its, its core target market, which is just not what we're after at all. Um, right. Our biggest competitor these days is probably Medium or Tumblr or those types of things. Um, but no, it was it, it was a help and also a competition, I guess. So the, the, the biggest thing was all the experience of being exposed to a very, very large open source project uh, and successful open source projects gave uh, us a ton of reference material on best practice and worst practice. So things to do sure. and things not to do um, yep. when starting out. So yeah, it was definitely a good platform to begin from. Also le led to some uh, very poor technical decisions in basing things on how WordPress had done them. For example, that like our first version of the code base was basically a Node.js project structured like a PHP project, which was purely because we hadn't written a Node.js project before. And we later figured out that was a really bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> which you're now, what you've been like rebuilding the whole thing, right? Yeah, I mean, um, open source projects always evolve like from sure. one year to the next. It's, it's less of like one big rebuild and rather than more like one continuous rebuild. Yep, yep. Has the um, the amount of open source contribution to the platform been more or less than you expected? Um, I'd say it's about on par with where I'd expect. Um, so we have maybe 20 really regular contributors, 15, 20 really regular contributors, and then in total going up to kind of 100 or so um, who step in, do a small bug fix, anything like that. But it's, it's always tough with open source to actually get an active contribution base going because it sure having that happen really depends on having a lot of um, people depend on your software who yep. actively need it and have a reason to maintain it not just maintain it out of the goodness of their hearts but maintain right. it because it benefits them in some way and that takes time to really build up the critical mass I mean, it's interesting. It's almost the same kind of problem. It's just a chicken and the egg problem in the same way that you're like building, you know, forums used to be a big deal, you know, I don't know, seven, yeah. eight, nine, ten years ago. And <laughs> it was the hardest thing to start a new like yeah. uh, uh, message board because it's there's no one there. Right. And nobody's using it, but you need people to be there. And um, yeah. Um, to, so I, so if. Let's transition here to like from a, to a business perspective, but still jumping off the open source thing. So when it comes to building the business itself, um, I mean, you know, as far as actually having a, a business that makes some money, um, does the open source aspect of it, is it, I mean, does it have any real bearing or does it almost have no monetary 
sort of significance? Uh, that's a really tough one. It's kind of all interwoven in a very complex manner. There's, the, right. there's nothing directly open source which we monetize. So our business model is we, we make the open source app for free, which you can download and install on your own servers, do whatever you want with it. Um, but if you can't be bothered, you don't want to manage with all that stuff, um, then we have a fully managed kind of platform as a service where you can deploy right. the software instantly. It's all completely optimized. It comes with a CDN, it comes with external storage, all that good stuff, backups, security, everything. Um, yep. So that's what we directly monetize, which is this, this fairly sophisticated backend platform to run the software, um, which is also kind of interesting because when, when you set out, you're like, I'm just going to build this cool little open source blogging platform. It'll be super simple. And now we actually run you know, a network of 20 servers serving more than 100 million requests a month. And people don't see that. They don't get like how sure. much work there is in the background. So they're like, well, why can't you just do the small, easy feature of like <laughs> right. scheduling my posts in a certain <laughs> order. Like, okay, well, we are doing stuff. It's just not all of it is 100% visible. And that's always tough to kind of um, communicate or manage in terms of like external comms. Sure, sure. Well, and so what, I mean, what what's, you've essentially got, uh, I mean, you're running essentially a, like a B2C business, right? I mean, when you think of it from a pricing perspective? Um, I would say it started out B2C, and lately we've been moving far more B2B, um, which is kind of the state of casual blogging, is the C, the consumers, are basically right. going to Medium nowadays. If you just want to oh, yeah, write something point. quickly, um, you don't want to write every day, it's not your whole business, it's not important to you, okay, sure, you're just going to put something on Medium, why not? Um, I would do the same thing. I think yep. that's even the best approach. Um, but what we really want to do long term is, is have an impact on people who are publishing professionally and consistently. So in the journalism space, um, a little bit in the content marketing space, really hit that kind of professional publishing angle. So we're starting to move and, and target what we're doing far more towards teams of writers, teams of editors, mm -hmm. um, people who are really going to use the software every single day. It's not a casual thing for them. They're effectively power users. Do you think... Um, is that just a marketing shift or is that a, a, a real tangible shift in how you're building the product itself? Uh, I would say it's more the latter, more the latter. So, so how do you, I mean, I guess what, you know, what's the big difference between uh, the casual blogger um, and I mean, all the way down to somebody who's like writing to keep their family up to date on something. Yeah. Uh, what's the difference between what them, like them posting regularly versus somebody who's like, say, a, a professional journalist or even like a, an actual publication? Um, yeah. That's constantly like, what's the, what are the big differences there as far as like the software goes? So the, there's, there's two sides to this. The, the economic side is the, the guy he or girl who's at home in their bedroom writing about their cat. Um, is doing it for fun and they don't have right. any monetary interest in maintaining it. Therefore, they have sure. a lower budget slash no budget for sure. paying for software to do that. Um, whereas a publication or a journalistic endeavor is usually a business. Uh, it's usually something that requires software to run, therefore are quite happy to spend money on it. Um, which is less kind of, uh, oh, we want to get all the money and more kind of, uh, we need money to build software <laughs> and do the things. Oh, sure. So, it makes sense to actually find people where they need the tools, the problem that needs to be solved. It's not just something they want to find the, the free, easy right, thing right. for. Um, the other side, in terms of actual products and, and the difference, is really um, like who you're optimizing for. So if you're optimizing for 
uh, person in bedroom writing about cat, the kind of baseline consumer market, their needs and wants are for everything to be as simple and point and click as possible. Um, so they want to just click to set something up, they want to click to change the color, they want to click to have an image work, um, they just want it to be kind of the Squarespace-y uh, website builder-y experience and not really have to think about it. Whereas if you flip to kind of the professional market, if you look at a, a massive blog for a startup or if you look at um, uh, a new site or a publication, usually they have a team of developers. And those developers do not need everything to be point and click with a fancy GUI. They need it to be flexible. They need that to be an API. They need to be able to have a good data store. They need to be able to manipulate all of their content in ways that they want, repurpose it for mobile, print, desktop, web, um, whatever. And so who you optimize building for um, is vastly different, I think, in terms of whether you make it as easy as possible to do everything or as kind of powerful and flexible as possible to have as many use cases, which is a very, very, very big shift in perspective from where we started to where we are now. So it's, it's kind of still in the middle of, of that transition, I would say. How do, how do um, so you think of, of WordPress, you know, I don't know how much um, partnerships with hosting companies played into their distribution, but like the whole one-click install thing. Um, is that something that you guys do or have any interest in doing, especially given that you want to shift more towards business stuff or? Uh, not really, um, which is kind of funny. There's, so there's, uh, <laughs> the, the simplest reason for that is Node.js does not work like PHP. Um, in the way that you can have a one-click WordPress installer and just have a, a PHP site running, um, yeah. that is, that's just not a thing uh, when it comes to Node.js land. I mean, you can, you can mimic it a little bit with containerization and, and images, um, but just as a, as a baseline concept, it's just not really the same ballpark. Um, the other slightly funny slash advantageous thing about that for us is we don't necessarily care that it's a little bit harder to install on your own hosting because that makes our platform um, more attractive, um, which is not to say we want it to be really hard for developers to set up on their own sure. servers, but if you really want that to be an easy experience, hey, we have a one-click solution and it's really, right. compared to your hourly rate, going to save you money, not cost you money. <laughs> Yeah. And it seems, I mean, there's this sort of natural barrier to entry or natural segmentation of the super amateur yeah. blogger. It kind of almost gets them out of that. Right. Unless they want to become a paying customer, in which case, fantastic. Right. Yes. Gotcha. Um, so you guys as a company are, you're incorporated where? In Singapore? Yes. Is that right? So... So what was the reason for that? And then, I mean, especially given you could essentially start a company anywhere on earth. Yeah, so that, that's kind of where we ended up. We, we figured out, um, we started off just incorporating the UK because I'm English, my co-founder Hannah mm -hmm. is English. And then after a while we realized our team is spread all over the world, our customers are spread all over the world. Um, and the money we, the revenue we get comes from all over the world and goes all over the world. There's really no one place where, um, it, and we have no investors, obviously. We're a non-profit organization, so we don't need to optimize for investor um, legalities and ease of ease of doing business and all that kind of stuff. So we kind of came at it from this approach of, literally, we could incorporate anywhere in the world. Uh, where would it be best? And after about a year of research, um, decided on Singapore um, for many, many reasons. But the, the most significant of which being it is the, I think, number two in the world for ease of doing business, or maybe even number one, number one in the world for ease of doing business. So 
all of their taxation, all of their reporting is straightforward. Um, all of their international trading regulations are simple and easy. All of their banking is just up to date and modern. Um, and it's just a great place to do business from. What, from a logistics standpoint, yeah. I mean, so do you have to have an address there? Sure. Just a, we have an agency who does all of our accounting, okay. incorporation, and they also have a registered office address for us. Yep. And everything runs through that. Is it something that, um, and we can touch on this in a second, but so Ghost is a nonprofit. Yeah. So is it, does the Singapore side of things, does it matter that you're a nonprofit or is it really like the Singapore setup sort of could work for any business? Singapore setup could work for any business. Um, okay. Easily. Yeah. 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 Um, are there any other, do you know of any other, I mean, maybe well-known startups or companies that incorporate in Singapore? Um, I don't know of that many big, uh, big brand names that are originally based in Singapore, but I know <laughs> of a ton of kind of Silicon Valley names who now have branches in Singapore. So you've got gotcha. Cloudplay, you've got Stripe, you've got TransferWise, all those guys. Um, yep. Their Asia Pacific headquarters is all in Singapore and they in have Singapore. offices there, uh, subsidiaries nice. there. So speaking of a nonprofit, so um, that's an interesting sort of angle to take <laughs> on building a startup. Um, so what does that mean practically for, for building a business and why be a nonprofit? Yeah, so this is always a fun one. I always call us the black sheep of startups because we don't have an office, we don't have shareholders. <laughs> and you and don't, don't actually have profit. <laughs> well, that's the funny I mean, thing. Dude, right, we right. do. <laughs> right. uh, and we don't have copyright. So we basically forego all of the traditional startup, um, I don't know, things. Yep. Um, yeah, no, that came from a couple of places as well. So one was I'd always been very ambitious and wanted to build big business from a young age. Um, and I always went through this kind of, you know, game in my head of if you won the lottery, you had a few million dollars that you could just do what you want with, then what would you do? What would you do with it? Um, and in the beginning, that's super easy. You're like, I'll buy a house, I'll buy a car, I'll give my boss the finger, I'll travel the world, I'll go and learn everything. Um, but once you burn through all those things, which would like every possible thing you could think of doing with an inconceivable amount of money, um, I think you could probably do it all in like three to five years tops. Yep. Okay, so let's say optimistically you are not going to die of some horrific thing, then you probably still have like a bunch of years left to live. So then what are you actually going to spend time on? Because um, at that point, money isn't important anymore. You've already bought all the things. So what are you going to spend time on? Um, and I realized I actually would just be doing what I'm doing now. So I travel a lot. I get to hack on open source code. I get to play in the journalism space, which I care very much about. I get to hang out with cool people. And... I would be doing exactly the same thing. So I, and I'm doing it on a normal salary, like a regular salary. For right. Silicon Valley standards, I'm doing it on a cut rate intern salary. Um, sure. So then why go chasing being a millionaire or anything when you can just have that right now and skip the in between? Yep. So that was kind of my, my internal personal side of things. Um, and then so I thought, well, wouldn't it be interesting if you tried to build a business explicitly that does not try to make you wealthy? Like it does the opposite. It yep. can never make you wealthy. And then how would that decision affect how you build products, how you make decisions about the business rather than optimizing for an exit or optimizing for your next round valuation? Um, what would it be like if you just had sole focus on your users and customers and nothing else, no other external influences to kind of um, get in the way or shape things differently? 
Um, so that was one whole side that I thought was interesting. And then the other one was very simple, which is that I'd seen this horrible split that WordPress have, uh, where they have this nonprofit foundation that no one really knows how it works, and then they have this big for-profit company called Automatic um, that has $330 million of investment, and the two are at constant odds in terms of their interests. There's a non-stop conflict of interest over um, who owns what, who makes what decisions, um, who the software really belongs to, who's really in charge of it, um, who's allowed to do what and what the motivations are of all the decisions behind the company and the direction of the software. Um, and that whole culture had been the worst thing that I'd experienced in my, my WordPress days. 90% of it was awesome, but um, the whole conflicts of ideology of open source versus optimizing for investors, um, I had just seen become a total mess. So yeah, all, and, that, and then looking at Mozilla and just really admiring uh, what they were doing back in the day. All of yeah. these things, sorry, I know it's not a simple answer, but all of these things kind of came together uh, to make me think, wouldn't it be interesting if you had software as a service for a nonprofit company making open source software? Um, that sounds like fun. <laughs> so, I mean, why not? Yeah. Well, yeah. as it turns out a few years later, the answer to why not is it's incredibly hard. And it, <laughs> you, take, you take all the like, stresses and pressures of a regular business, and then you, you pile on top all the restrictions of a, of a nonprofit and yeah. the limitations in what you can do and how you can do it. Uh, it turns out there are a whole bunch of reasons for why open source is a harder than just building a closed platform and nonprofits right. harder than yep. uh, having the option to have some liquidity to boost cash flow, do more stuff. So yep. yeah, swings and roundabouts. Swings, it's super interesting. Going back, I don't think I'd do anything differently, but um, it's a very hard model to work with. I will say that. Yep, yep. I mean, is there any, would you, you do the same thing again, but you, I guess, does that sort of, give you some insight into why maybe like say automatic for instance who makes wordpress like why they would have both because the nonprofit part is really difficult i don't think so um i th i don't feel like automatic chose to go down that route out of a knowledge or experience of of seeing that it foreseeing how hard it would be to do it a different way i think yep. it was more that matt had an opportunity at a relatively young age and he took it and fair play sure. to him yep um Obviously, I don't know any of this to be 100% true. That's just my speculation. Um, but no, I, I think, I think there's, there's so much more that can be done. And what I would love to do, if nothing else, with Ghost is to prove that there is an alternate model available. Mm -hmm. um, that there isn't just this black and white of, you know, you make no money and you're just a hippie or you have to take tons and tons of investment and make everything closed and copyrighted and then sell it. Um, I would love to prove that there's, that it is possible to have a sustainable business model somewhere in the middle that is socially good, that also makes enough money to pay you a healthy salary um, and have the freedom to do what you want in your life. And is kind of trying to be a little bit the best of both worlds and not extreme in one way or the other. So do you think that Ghost as, a, um, as an organization will always be solely focused on blogging? Don't know. The, the underlying mission is um, building technology for journalism. Um, okay. Right now, that's in, in the form of a publishing platform. Um, sure. Another time, uh, sorry, another day in the future when we have AI and we have VR and all that sort of shit, maybe we would want to experiment with the technology in those spaces to accomplish the same goal. Um, yep. But it's always interesting to drill down those um, different levels of why, right? Like, 
Yep. We've got publishing platform, which is a solution trying to do something with journalism and care about journalism because it's the single biggest influence, I think, on modern society in terms yep. of who we vote for, what we buy, why we do what we do. It's all based on how communities and society are informed about what's going on. Um, and then ultimately trying to make them more, give them more freedom um, mm -hmm. and really creating freedom and, and doing those types of things without wanting to sound too kind of, uh, we want to change the world cheesiness. Um, yep is at the core of, of what we care about. That's why the software is open source. That's why the company is not for profit. That's why we don't restrict where our team lives in the world or how many hours they work. Um, it's all just about trying to create freedom. So there's, I think, tons of different potential opportunities in the future where we could expand into. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, how is, I mean, it seems like so many businesses, when they start, they, you know, they've got obviously a really basic thing that they're trying to fix, solve, do, whatever, and, I think there's some businesses that do a really good job of um, expanding and doing more without sort of losing that focus, whereas other businesses will just tack things on forever. Yeah. Um, that's a hard balance. Yeah, for yeah. sure. All right. Well, that seems like a, that seems a good pot, uh, a good place to uh, to wrap it up, man. You like rallied yeah. the troops with your <laughs> the future of journalism. So. I hope so. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, so how? Uh, what's the best way for people to get in touch and follow along? Uh, find me on Twitter, twitter.com slash John Nolan. Um, if you want to send me an email, get in touch, john at ghost.org. Anytime. Always happy to talk to new people. Um, that's about it. Check out my blog, john.onolan.org. All good. All right. Good deal. Well, uh, thanks for hopping on the call, John. All good. All right. Thanks, man. Cheers. Cheers. There we have it. Hope you enjoyed it. If you did, give it a rating on iTunes. And if you hate it, keep your thoughts to yourself. <laughs> Just kidding. Sort of. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.